Warning, Home Truths is about real life, and real life can be distressing. Topics covered may include descriptions of domestic violence, sexual abuse, addiction, or mental health issues. Listener discretion is advised. A Podcast One production. I'm Wendy Searle, and this is Home Truths. What will it feel like? It will be like nothing you have ever felt. How will I know? Oh, you will know. It will be the worst pain you could experience in your life and you will either be dead or you wish you were. Good to know. Social skills may not have been in his repertoire, but hard facts certainly were. And when someone tells you this, you don't forget it. I forget my pin number and my sunglasses, but never this. This is Kirsten. She has a ticking time bomb in her head. Okay, where do I start? So I'm a very much an alive girl, but I have a aneurysm uh, in my internal carotid artery. It's called a fusiform traumatic aneurysm. So it's basically waiting to pop and it's inoperable, which means I can't do anything else to help me with it. And so that uh, puts a a time limit on me, I suppose, in some senses, and also... um, means that I'm not exp- I don't have a long life expectancy. So yeah, that's what that means, but I am very much alive and uh living life to the fullest as much as I possibly can and yeah, that just sounds weird. <laughs> it all started with headaches. Kirsten wasn't too worried, but she thought she'd better see a doctor just in case. I was having some headaches and I went to the doctor and they said, we um, might send you in to get an MRI. And they were just checking out what was going on. And while they were in there, they found this little tiny weenie aneurysm. They found it by accident. That's not what they were looking for. It's like while they're in the brain, hello, we've got a nasty little surprise in there. So Kirsten went straight to a surgeon who recommended that they open her skull immediately and clip the aneurysm. I was told that it was an incredibly high-risk operation, so I would either come out completely okay or I wouldn't come out at all. So there was a very high expectation that I actually would not make it through the operation. Uh, When I woke up, I was blind uh, and unable to walk, so I had to learn how to walk again. And uh, I was told that it was more than likely I would not, my vision wouldn't return. You've equated blindness to having a superpower. Mm. Tell me what you mean. For anybody that hasn't been blind or is not blind, the idea of being blind is absolutely petrifying to people uh, that you would feel incredibly vulnerable. Um, Within 10 days of not being able to see, my hearing, my sense of touch, everything amplified. It was absolutely extraordinary. I could physically feel my body acclimatising to what was going on. It it was like, heck, I can't see, so now I need to up the ante so I have more senses. So it was quite extraordinary. My my sense of hearing was absolutely unbelievable. I could just about hear. You could never sneak up on me. And I started to pick up on cues from people that you would never before. So often we get a lot of our cues from visually engaging with other people. We don't listen. And so suddenly those visual cues were completely removed. So I could pick up on cues in people's voices and hear if they were nervous, if they were a little bit shy, all of these things that you, you, you don't normally hone in on. And it was extraordinary. It was absolutely extraordinary. Kirsten's body was going through extreme change. And one of her weapons in dealing with it was humour. 
she found jokes in the bleakest of circumstances. I honestly do believe that the the recipe to actually getting through in as much of one piece as you possibly can is humour, definitely without a doubt. For example, I remember this poor man came in every day when I was in rehab and kept offering me a newspaper. <laughs> and I just, I couldn't, I tried, and he, he must have thought I was so strange because I kept getting the giggles. I'm like, I can't read the newspaper, but how do I tell him? I'm going to break this guy's heart. And after like eight weeks, I said, look, I can't read the paper. And he said, why? And I just started laughing. And it was terrible. And it's so dark. And then the other one, the other one, that was an absolute ripper. I had this amazing room in rehab with the full view of Geelong, of the waterfront. And people kept coming in and saying, haven't you got a wonderful view? I'm like, why don't you tell me about that? I don't know. Have I? (laughs) So there was a lot of that going on. (laughs) How long did it take for your vision to come back? And how did it come back? It was actually, um, I think from memory, it was around three months, three to four months uh, from when I left hospital. And it turned on very quickly. So I was actually in bed with my husband and we have this revolting front door that's old 70s glass and I was laying in bed and I rolled over and I said, we really need to get rid of that glass. It's really quite ugly. And then I realised because I'd just woken up, I was actually looking at the glass. And then my husband rolled over and looked at me and he could see that I was looking at him. You know, there's a very specific kind of point of contact when someone's looking at you when they haven't been able to. And, of course, he got quite emotional and we... And then I was horribly sick because one thing that you get when your vision turns back on is horrendous vertigo. There's all this information coming back into the brain. So I was very sick and very dizzy for quite a long time. I was given the all clear. Everything was fine. We went back to life as normal. Uh, And then in 2015, I went in to get my annual review and it was my husband and I hoping and praying that they were going to tell me that the aneurysm had shrunk and I was going to be okay. And I was hell-bent that that was going to happen that day and it didn't. It was the worst news possible. Um, Unfortunately, from the first operation, I now had this massive second aneurysm that was inoperable. There was no way that they could do neurosurgery on that and that's now what I have. The news was devastating. But a sliver of hope came when an interventional radiologist told Kirsten there was one option. She could have a little device called a Fred put in. The Fred would act like a stent to try and shrink the aneurysm. But the surgery was risky and they would need to act fast. So they gave me three days to think about it, if I would have the operation. I remember saying to him, if this was one of your children, would you tell them to do it? And he came back, he said, I don't know. I actually don't know. But we're going to give you some time to think about it. So I had three days to consider whether I would have the operation. Again, high risk. It could make it rupture. Could I ask why three days? That was just how long it took me to make up my mind. (laughs) I could have made my mind up at the time, but I really wanted to think it through. Uh, Because I'd already had brain surgery before and I knew the things that could go wrong, I really needed to think on whether I wanted to take that line, Uh, which, yeah. So that was a really difficult time for my family because they had to give me the space to make that decision on whether I would go ahead with that or not. If you had decided not to go ahead with the surgery in 2015. What did the surgeon say may occur? They said it would be very unlikely that I would live till Christmas. They went in through my groin 
and put this tiny little thread in my brain uh, and that was meant to fix the whole show. It was meant to occlude it, fix it, sort it, even though it was still really high risk. That was the hope Um, and unfortunately that didn't happen so it's still there and it's still filling with blood. What's the prognosis? The prognosis is, you know, there's only so much an artery can stretch. So the prognosis is not good. The fa- every day is, um, every single day is, is essentially, it sounds incredibly cliche, but every day is a gift. It could be today, it ruptures, it could be tomorrow, it could be next week, it could be in three years, but the life, my life expectancy is not long. Um, I'm 42 now and arteries deteriorate as we get older and this one's hanging on by a thread. Every single time my heart pumps, it puts it under, it puts it under duress. Kirsten started writing a blog. She'd always been a writer and it helped to make sense of what makes no sense. Looking perfectly healthy while living with a death sentence. Someone operated on me and made a mess of my brain. The entire contents of my brain, my grey matter, the old think tank and noggin is being held together with a microscopic thing called a thread, which isn't doing its job very well because it has slipped and created a high-volume bomb ticking in my head. Sneezes, dangerous. Flying, dangerous. Humidity in the common cold ain't great. Constipation now holds a genuine concern and vomiting, forget it. Anxiety, stress and a raised heart rate are the worst, but head knocks, I can take those. I have titanium in there. One unfortunate headbutt from my husband getting out of the car almost knocked him out and I didn't feel a thing. It was pretty good. She has a rich life as a mother, a wife, a business owner and a friend. But she's also a realist and she wanted to do everything she could, while she could, not just to prepare her family for the worst, but to lead them in the best place to continue on without her. I understand that your family's undergoing grief counselling. Mm-hmm. What's that like? You can get into a kind of weird normal where you just get on with life and you kind of, it's like you're sort of pretending that it's not going on because we've been dealing with this for a while now. But then you have to stop for a moment and say, well, hang on, we need to be emotionally truthful. And this is a really unusual situation for us to be in. Incredibly unusual. It's very unnatural for children to have to be thinking about how long their mother's got to live um, and not knowing ever when that will be. It, it's an incre- it, and it's not something that you have a reference point for. We're not conditioned to know how to deal with that. My husband was never brought up to be conditioned to the idea that he may or may not may not have a wife tomorrow, and it is a conscious thing. It's in it's in the forefront of your mind all the time, and other people other people aren't aware of of what what that's like. And because I look relatively normal, as normal as you can, we're visual creatures, so it's not in the forefront of people's mind. Oh well, she must be okay because I'm. Interestingly enough, the first operation, I was completely bald, cut everywhere. I had staples in my head. I was swollen from steroids and I looked so sick. Now I'm sicker, but I don't look sick. So it's very easy to kind of just get on with life unless something happens to shake you out of that. So unless I have, you know, a seizure or something happens to shake that up. And so it was actually two friends, beautiful friends of mine said, you know, this is a really weird situation for you guys to be in. It probably wouldn't hurt just to check in with a counsellor. 
Um, and so we went, yeah, okay. We said to the kids, I think we need some counselling. Everyone was like, no, we're all okay. Are we though? Are we really okay? And so it was very weird. So you're going to get grief counselling to check in with everybody about an event that hasn't even really happened. We were all petrified and it was one of the most liberating things and the best things we've ever done as a family and it made us feel very normal. And then realising that there are actually other families in Australia and around the world that deal with this. There are all sorts of diseases that put, I suppose, an idea of a limit on your life and you have to deal with that. And then it happens, the thunderclap headache, standing in the kitchen, having a conversation, perfectly normal, no build-up, no symptoms, no warning, instant projectile vomit and what feels like someone shooting me in the brain from across the room. Shock, trauma and ouch, and not in that given order. The pain, today some six months later I cannot believe I could be in that much physical pain and not be dead. The ambulance came quickly that night and then the sirens and my name over and over again. Kirsten, can you hear us? She's not breathing. BP is dropping. I answer, why can no one hear me? They can. Someone is screaming and I think it's me. Don't leave me. The rolling vomit, the wave after wave of nausea surges through my body like nothing I have known. The entire contents of my body feel like they're pouring out of my mouth and a tsunami I have no control over and my whole body shakes and shudders from the violence of it. By the time we got to the hospital, I was passed out, pupils dilated and I was in trouble. A suspected brain bleed. By Friday, I was washing the dishes and planning dinner at my kitchen sink with what felt like a hangover, but no other symptoms. How? How is this possible? Gratitude, wonder and then the uh uh-oh set in. Then everything is fine today, so let's move forward. Nothing to see here sets in. It's the survivor in me. Thinks she's a cross between Charles Bronson and a Williams sister. No one likes a martyr. The grief counsellor reassured me this sweet denial was a path to potential disaster. It happened. And it happened to me. It happened to Lothario, my children, my brother, and a lovely friend we had visiting at the time of the incident. And what about anger? Oh, yeah, there's anger. There's been righteous anger. Um, I would definitely say that anger um, and shame and guilt are incredibly negative emotions that will harm you pretty quickly if you let yourself sink into them. So you you can't allow that to happen. You have to focus on the light, you have to focus on laughter, you have to focus on being around people that get it, um, nurturing each other. It's a constant striving, I suppose. It's a very fine line. It's a very, very fine line. But the moment you start to feel sorry for yourself is the moment you'll backslide and that you just can't do that because whatever time you have here is so incredibly precious. So you don't want to waste it. You don't want to waste it being angry. People have said to you, and I've read, that you'll be all right How do you feel about that? People are really invested in wanting you to be okay. And so when you're being mindful of them and considerate to them, you respect that. But then sometimes, sometimes there's a lack of, would you say, acknowledgement for your situation. People can be so invested in you being okay that they might not acknowledge what's going on. 
Now, I don't find that difficult because, as I said, I'm fairly self-sufficient in maintaining my emotional health. Sometimes it's hard for my family, you know, sometimes for the kids and uh, for Travis, my husband, that can be really difficult because there's a sense that people don't really understand what you're going through. But, you know, once we come together and we, we have a bit of a laugh and spend family time together, that becomes less important. But sometimes, every now and again, it's really difficult. Um, I actually had one family member say to me, um, well, it's not like they told you you're going to die or something. Like, we could get hit by a bus tomorrow. And I'm like, OK, that's OK. You can think that. Because that person very close to me needed to feel that, needed to know that I was going to be OK. Um, yeah. But as I said to somebody, my thing is somebody said to me, oh, yeah, I know, but you know what? We can all die tomorrow. You really could get hit by a bus tomorrow. And my response to that is yes, but if you walked into a doctor's office and the doctor said, now, we're not sure if it's going to be tomorrow or next week, but it's probably going to be the next couple of years, you're actually going to get hit by a bus and you're going to die, you probably wouldn't walk on the road. I reckon there's a chance you wouldn't be going anywhere near bitumen and bus stops would become the antithesis to everything in life. So, yeah, there is something definitely um, life-altering to being told um, that you're not going to make it. For those reading this or hearing this uh, that have said to me, I love you for caring enough to say that to me. I really do. And I'm invested in believing that I'm going to be fine too. 365 days of the year, which is 825 days longer than they expected me to live. But sometimes shit just gets real. Sometimes it just is. Left with the facts, you then rely on your faith to surge through again, creating an equilibrium that is a force to be reckoned with. In the meantime, there are moments of emotional truth, good or bad, pretty or ugly, they just are. But this can be distressing to others, so I don't do that. I take it to God. Writing for me is a flow of what's going on internally, externalising that. For me, if that can lift people or it can make them laugh or make them smile and make them feel good, it's incredibly addictive. That's a wonderful thing. That's absolutely everything to me. Watching people smile and lifting people up or giving them a sense of joy or a sense of reflection or making them think about things differently. Because for me, this is seriously one of the best things that could have ever happened in my life. It is one of the best, it's not one of the best things that could happen for my children or for my husband and there's so much trauma attached to it. I would never have stepped into the space of going, yeah, I'm a writer and yes, I'm going to do that. The conversations you have with people, the conversations that I've had with my children are conversations that nobody ever has with each other. You tell people how you feel. You, if, if you love somebody, you tell them that you love them. If you've had a fight with somebody and you don't want that fight to last... You tell them, I'm sorry, I'm sorry this has happened because you've got to get all your stuff in order. And you do, very neatly. And, and that has been an opportunity of a lifetime. I have the most emotionally honest relationships. I am not friends with people I don't need to be friends with. You give yourself permission to to not care anymore about the things that don't matter anymore. You don't care about waiting in line. You don't care about all the little things anymore. And that would, I don't believe that would have happened to me if I wasn't in this situation. I've mended bridges. I've had incredible conversations. My close girlfriends, my friendships that I have, uh, they're very brave. I've been very, very blessed to have childhood friends that I've taken on this journey with me sometimes kicking and screaming, 
But, oh, boy, they're brave, incredibly brave. And I've been given, you know, talkings too. Like, don't you go and die on us, you know? We need you here when we're all old ducks to have wine on the beach. Um, but, yeah, I do believe that from any tragedy, if you focus hard enough, you can bring some light to it and it doesn't have to be as prickly or as painful. I found great solace in your writing and I think that your bravery and your capacity to say it, it just is. I think that you've helped a heck of a lot of people and you continue to do it. And just by being Kirsten, the writer is also sharing it to a larger audience. And for that, I thank you. And thank you for speaking to me for Home Truths. Thank you so much, Kirsten. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> and I thought that was my final takeaway. Kirsten's capacity to live with a death sentence, but instead of grieving, deciding to live a full life every day while preparing her family for her passing as best she could. And then after a year or so, Kirsten contacted me. She wanted to tell me something urgently. So last time we spoke, things were not, you know, looking that great for me uh, with this aneurysm and this brain full of metal. Then at the end of last year, I actually went in for my routine scans and uh, got the news that things are healing. My aneurysm is on the, on the healing road, which means if things keep going the way that they are, I might actually make old bones yet. That is massive. Yeah, it was really difficult to process. I know that there was crazy, like inappropriate laughter, tears, um, dancing. There was dancing in the car park and uh, I must have looked like an insane person and then drove home and told everybody there was running on the beach. I think I wore everybody out. I guess I had this naive idea that it would kind of be like winning the Tats Lotto. My doctor actually said to me, what did you think that you just high five everybody and get on with it and that would be it? Uh, and I'm like, yeah, I think I did. And that is not what happened. So <laughs> probably a couple of weeks after that, uh, it hit me like really, it's, it sounds cliche, but like a freight train. And uh, it has definitely been a roller coaster. You know, when when somebody sits you down and says, you know, we don't know what your life expectancy is. It could be today, tomorrow, a month, a year. Uh, you, you're never going to be the same again. Like you, you, you're different. You're going to be different for um, from that point forward. Uh, and just what sort of road that difference takes, I guess, is the clincher. And for us. It certainly had a huge impact on so many levels for my husband and my children's life and friends and family. And then to find out that all of that, um, even though I'll never be given, you know, the all clear as such, but for some of that to be uh, relieved and to have, I guess, the idea of, of a fresh opportunity um, and hope was, oh, just absolutely massive and brilliant and wonderful, but then also that emotional roller coaster. Uh, so, yeah. To have the weight of a death sentence taken off you, it must just be huge. How, what was your emotions through the last, since October? To start off with, I think I was just ecstatic. I was beside myself ecstatic. 
then there was, you know, that beautiful position of retrospect. So I could take a breath. I could take a breath and have a look at where I'd come from and what that journey had been and what was in front of me. And that was massive. That was absolutely massive because I think I gave myself the space to be somewhat more objective and more of an observer of my life. Uh, And it brought about some pretty big decisions, Wendy, it really did. And then a couple of months ago as well, my auntie, who I was very, very close to, uh, and she was one of the fundamental people in my life as a child that helped to kind of build my faith. She actually died quite suddenly um, from exactly the thing that I've been battling. So she went for a lie down and uh, she was only a young auntie and um, she had an aneurysm rupture while she was sleeping. And that was... That's been, yeah, that's been huge. Um, And there is this thing that nobody really talks about either, which is survivor's guilt. So it it wasn't all roses, I have to say. There was a sense of, well, why me? Um, And then eventually getting to that place of acceptance of going, well, why not? You know, why not me? And now what am I going to do with that? Which I think is the most important position to get to. What am I now going to do with this opportunity uh, now that these doors have really opened up? And do you have any answers for that? Yeah, so I made a few decisions and I made a few life changes. Um, I think the biggest one for me is, and that's been, you know, with your encouragement, is to talk to people more. Um, You know, the whole... (laughs) our whole journey of what we've been through isn't exactly dinner table conversation. And so I would often in a social situation kind of, you know, breeze over it. And it's giving permission for the circumstances that I've been through not to define who it is that I am, uh, but instead to see them as opportunities to grow and to lead just a life of permission, I think, and it's acceptance to go, I give myself permission to live whatever life it is that I want to live. So if that's just having a chilled out life with no expectation on yourself to achieve or to, you know, watch the grass grow and just chill out, because we live in a pretty crazy world sometimes that's, you know, that pushes us to be better and Um, to achieve all the time, then that's okay. And then at the same time, if you want to go out and smash life, that's okay. And I think I, you know, I got to this point where I went, you know what, I'm just going to live my purpose uh, with no apologies and to spend time with the people that I feel like I'm in alignment with. Uh, I decided to get my backside into gear and um, We've done some travel. Uh, what else have we done? I also, uh, I, you know, I had ponderings and um, it started out as a blog and we decided to take that and turn that into a digital magazine to tell other stories. So that's just been awesome. So that and, you know, more time with the people that you really want to have time with and no more small talk, Wendy. There's no more small talk. I, you know, let's just get right down into the guts of life with people. How are your children? They're really good. They're really good. They're they're, they're so bloody resilient now. They're so resilient and they're just incredible. They've they've been through a lot. 
um, they're probably a lot older in their minds um, and hearts than what they should be. And for your husband, being your partner through uh, such a, a big journey and now, how is it for him? I think the most tangible thing that, I've, that I saw within weeks with um, Travis and Montana, Jesse and Lockie was um, it was almost like a cloud of fear lifted from them. There was a real difference in them. And I think because we've been doing it for such a long time, you don't even really notice that it was there. Do you know what I mean? It's like living next to a train line. You stop hearing the train. And we were always such great communicators. And so um, I didn't, you know, their fear wasn't really obvious to people. I mean, you know, it was there, but it wasn't, they weren't wearing it like a coat. Um, And then when it dissipated, it was really obvious. And gosh, that that, that for me was... um, that was a um, that was a real joy, real joy. I've been on a long journey with Kirsten over the past year or so, and her almost relentless bravery has been a bit of an inspiration when I've stumbled in my own life. Kirsten's always seen the big picture, and. When I speak to her, I understand that life is a gift and that whatever challenges it throws up, we are almost always equal to them if we choose to be. Home Truths was presented by Wendy Searle and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production and music by Matt Nikolic. If you would like to receive a free notification each time I release a new episode, hit subscribe. And if you would like to get in touch and share a story of your own, email me at hello at wendysearle.com. That's wendy, S-E-A-R-L-E dot com. Podcast One. If any of the issues in this episode have affected you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Lifeline provides all Australians experiencing a personal crisis, access to a 24-hour crisis support and suicide prevention services. For a list of more specialised resources, please visit www.puckerup.com forward slash help and that's spelt P-U-K-A-U-P dot com forward slash help.